It's Tuesday, January 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Everyone knows there is money to be made by going viral on TikTok, and it's enough to make some reconsider the line of work they are in. To bolster that idea, you can look to some TikTok stars that are making more money than many of the top CEOs in the country. Charlie D'Amelio, who gained notoriety for dancing and spun her fame off into a clothing line, made more money last year than the CEOs of ExxonMobil, Starbucks, and McDonald's. Joseph Pisani, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, we have been seeing the effects of climate change on humans, animals, and our environment, but one place that has been overlooked are insects. Once thought to be very resilient, we are seeing their life cycles change, some on the verge of extinction like bumblebees, and the rise of damaging pests like locusts and mosquitoes. Oliver Millman, reporter for The Guardian, joins us for how the speed of climate change is causing an imbalance in the insect world. Finally, you might think that marijuana and parenting don't mix, but there's a growing movement of canna moms who say consuming weed helps them to calm down, reduce anxieties, and be more present in their kids' lives. They want to fight the stigma around it and also make clear that they aren't getting blazingly hot. Jesse Staniforth, contributor to the BBC, joins us for more on canna moms. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. People see their daily life. They learn about their breakups or triumphs, sad days, whatever it is. And they have this different connection with them. And they're more willing to buy what they tell them to buy. And they trust them. Joining us now is Joseph Pisani, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Hey, thanks for having me. I saw the headline for your article and uh, right away it kind of made me think, what am I doing with my life? Uh, I'm sure this type of story (laughs) always makes other people feel the same way. The article's about TikTok stars making more money than many of America's top CEOs. You know, they're making millions of dollars, not necessarily only from the app because they do make money from being content creators there, but a lot of them are branching off, you know, building brands, other businesses, but they're getting that kickstart off of the uh, the TikTok app. So Joseph, tell us a little bit about it. Who's making millions and millions of dollars more than these CEOs? Yeah. So we saw the list from Forbes. We saw that Charlie D'Amelio is making 17.5 million. She made that last year. And we put it against our own uh, Wall Street Journal CEO compensation list. And um, it turns out that she made more last year than the median pay for CEOs which was 13.4 million in 2020. Yeah, so she made 17.5 million last year. You listed off some other CEOs that she made more money than. So she made more money than the Exxon Mobil CEO, Starbucks CEO, Delta Airlines CEO, even McDonald's. She yeah. made more than all of them. And as I mentioned, a lot of this is uh they get their start on TikTok. I think her and her sister specifically were doing dances on TikTok, but they leveraged that popularity and all those followers into big businesses. They started on TikTok just a couple of years ago. Um, All they did was dance. Right now, um, Charlie and her sister Dixie, um, they have a clothing line with Hollister, um, but they have, the clothing line is their own. It's called um, Social Tourist, and it seems to be doing well. And they also have a Hulu show that's streaming. Um, It's a reality show about their family. It features Charlie and Dixie, and they wear the clothes on TikTok, but also on Hulu. So they're branching out and they're diversifying where their money is coming from. 
for brands that do partnerships with them so they can promote products and all that, they really find these influencers, followers pretty irresistible. I mean, they want to get connect with them because they have such connection. A follower might have a, a, such a strong connection they feel with the influencer that they love. They're willing to do anything that they want. You know, they'll buy the products. They'll do that. And so brands are really finding this lucrative for themselves, too. I talked to like marketing experts and they said that the connection is different with followers and influencers than it is with Hollywood stars. Like with influencers, people see their daily life. They learn about their breakups or triumphs, sad days, whatever it is. And they have this different connection with them and they're more willing to buy what they tell them to buy and they trust them. Uh, another star you guys uh, profiled too was Addison Ray. She made eight point five million, but that still puts her ahead of other CEOs like uh, the CEO of Costco, and, and she's got a movie on Netflix, uh, and again makeup lines, things like that. And the brands realize that the followers will follow these influencers um, and buy their products. So that's that's what they're reaching for. Um, a lot of the people on TikTok are young; they're under twenty five, um, and they're trying to reach a new a new audience. Addison Ray. She never acted before, and she's starring in, in a Netflix movie. You know, it's a role that would have gone to, like, a Hollywood actress, but um, it went to her. So all of these, you know, very young people are using TikTok as this entry point, this jumping off point. Let's get some followers. Let's get some fans. And then you leverage that into your other businesses and everything. But some of the experts you talk to say, you know, they, they see that this is going to be you know, what's going on for some time. You know, we saw it with other things too, obviously, right? With Instagram and, and that, but uh, it, it seems to have moved on now to TikTok, for, for, at least for the moment. We've seen this with Kylie Jenner. She grew up, we saw her grow up um, in front of the cameras at, uh, keeping up with the Kardashians, but she was a huge influencer on Instagram and she created this beauty brand selling lipsticks and eyeliner and, and makeup. And in 2020, the owner of CoverGirl bought a huge stake in it. So that could happen to these TikTok stars too, where they their brand grows so much bigger that major companies will want a piece of it. Joseph Pisani, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bumblebees, due to their um, their structure, the fact that they're obviously quite heavy, hefty bee, they've got a kind of permanent fur coat on at all times. They can't really survive in exceptionally hot temperatures, and that's what they're being subjected to right now. Joining us now is Oliver Millman, environment reporter for The Guardian. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Good to be with you, Oscar. I wanted to talk about uh, a climate change story, but one that uh, many, uh, a lot of people probably don't really think about we know that climate change affects us in a variety of different ways. We obviously think of ourselves, humans, and our, our, our immediate environment, animals. But one that you might not think about is the effect on insects too much. You know, for a lot of people, they're pests, basically, in a lot of different ways. But they're such an integral part of the ecosystem. And, you know, the traditional thought was that they would probably fare much better. They're much more resilient and would fare much better throughout, you know, what's going on with climate change. But scientists are, are seeing that that might not be the case. They fear that if warming continues, you know, half of all insect species could lose their habitable range. You know, there's a lot of wide ranging effects for them. So, Oliver, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? 
Yes, that's right. I mean, insects obviously are numerous in their species and number, and there was this um, previous expectation that because of that, their numbers would be elastic enough to survive even uh, the ravages of of climate change. But research is showing that that is not quite the case, that um, they, like every other animal, have an ideal temperature band, a range that they like to operate in, and they're being pushed beyond that. Certainly many species of insects being pushed beyond that, and that's um, harming many species of bee and butterfly and other types of insect that are simply unable to survive in the in the conditions that are being um, created now around the world with, with global heating. So there's species of bumblebee, for example, in the US, around half of um, bumblebee species are in rapid decline, and scientists have, have linked that quite clearly to climate change, um, as well as kind of habitat loss and other other impacts such as pesticides but um bumblebees due to their um their structure the fact that they're obviously quite a heavy hefty bee they've got a kind of permanent fur coat on at all times they can't really survive in exceptionally hot temperatures and that's what they're being subjected to right now there are lots of other types of species of uh, insects um in other parts of the world in the amazon you find beetles in the amazon where they're in decline there too fireflies um all, all sorts of species of insect now being put under right. threat due to the climate crisis on bumblebees we just recently heard that they could go extinct by 2050 you know if things persist this way and you know to your point more about bees evenly even uh in, in 2019 there was this uh, i guess report that we saw nine new species of bees only to then turn around and see right away that they could face extinction by climate related issues. So, I mean, just kind of that, how delicate that balance is, right? Uh, one bee that we've had for so long, the bumblebee is endangered, nine new species come out and then immediately they're mm. in danger right away. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that shows the scale of the crisis, I think. I mean, we, we kind of know of about a million types of named insects in the world, but the expectation is there is maybe 5 million or, or maybe even far more. There's far more species of insect out there than we know about. So it's very likely that we are wiping out species of insects without even knowing about them, which is quite a kind of sad thought when you think about it. I think the kind of broader knock-on impact is that it's a tragedy losing individual species, of course, but we've got to think about the consequences of that. If kind of springs are arriving earlier, for example, um, because of climate change, that means insects are out of sync. They obviously typically emerge around spring and, and that sets off a whole kind of range of effects in the environment. If they are not arriving when they're expected, then that means that plants are not in sync with them. It means that creatures that feed upon them, such as birds, aren't ready either. So birds suffer and we're seeing decline in bird numbers in the US and Europe, quite well documented declines of birds that rely upon insects for their food, whereas in birds that eat uh, fruit aren't so bad off. And also pollination is another massive um, issue as well. Uh, bees and other pollinators are, are crucial for our food supply. And if um, climate change is um, affecting their emergence and their survival rates, and that has huge implications for our global food system, as yeah. well as pests as well. Yeah, it's um, an inter- it's an the interesting- hotter it gets, more, more pests we get too. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing that you don't really think about. Those life cycles are, are off and we've already seen them be off by some days and maybe some months in some cases with different insect species. But as that can continue, you know, it throws everything off, as you mentioned, the birds and plants. And to your point that you were just making right now, the other pests, you know, not all of the insects uh, are doing bad. Some of the, you know, locusts thrive in some of this stuff. You know, that's great news, right? As they, you know, decimate crops across the world. 
And, you know, as the climate changes, you know, we start seeing some more damage from these players, house flies, mosquitoes, all of these. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I guess one of the, most, the deadliest impacts is going to be the changing range of mosquitoes. So as always with climate change, there's winners and losers. Not every insect is going to lose out when it gets warmer. And one type of animal that likes warm temperatures, generally speaking, is mosquitoes. And when you think about disease carrying mosquitoes range, that's going to expand massively. We're going to see an extra billion people uh, across the planet being exposed to diseases such as malaria, um, dengue, um, West Nile, due to the expanded range of mosquitoes. They can survive in greater areas and uh, larger areas than they have done in the past. We're seeing that now in the US is um, mosquitoes um, are able to edge further north than they had done before in the States. We're seeing it in Europe, areas of the Mediterranean are getting diseases that they never had before or had in hundreds of years because of uh, expanded uh, mosquito range. And we're going to see that more and more because we're creating an environment that's quite nice for mosquitoes and cockroaches right. and some other creatures, but not, not so nice for, for bees and butterflies, the things that we kind of value and cherish. Oliver Millman, environment reporter for The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. consuming very low doses, but at the same time feeling that it actually made them better parents, more patient, more willing to listen. And it was something that I, I, I've had on my radar for a number of years, just as, as a continually growing phenomenon. Joining us now is Jesse Staniforth, contributor to the BBC. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about a, an interesting topic, moms. So these are right. a, an increasing number of women and mothers who are using cannabis, marijuana, and they say that it helps them with uh, their parenting. You know, it helps calm them down, take a little bit of the anxieties of life away, especially with what we just went through with the pandemic and all. And they're saying that they're using this a little bit more as a wellness tool. So, Jesse, help us uh, walk through some of this. I first encountered this phenomenon. I, I've been covering cannabis as a beat for about uh, four years now, since just the lead up to Canadian legalization, because I'm up here in Canada. And I was just out reporting on different stories, and I began to notice the number of women who identified as weed moms or canna moms, and were speaking specifically not about the idea that, yeah, it's so hard being a parent and cannabis takes the edge off, but actually saying, I find cannabis to bring a net positive to my parenting in some way. And they were saying this, you know, usually in the context of talking about consuming very low doses, but at the same time feeling that it actually made them better parents, more patient, more willing to listen. And it was something that I, I, I've had on my radar for a number of years, just as, as a continually growing phenomenon. And so when I was speaking with the BBC about subjects that, that we might work on, I mentioned that in passing, and they were very, very interested in having that discussion because over there in the UK, they still have not legalized. And so this notion, I think, is going to be a, a lot more controversial over there than in places in, you know, like Canada and certain U.S. states that have legalized. But it is certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's a trend that's on an upward swing. One of the biggest misconceptions that they want to kind of dispel with is that they're not getting super high to the point right. where that they can't function and everything. As I mentioned earlier, almost more of a wellness tool, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're microdosing in a lot of cases, they would say. And I would also say, you know, if, if these moms are using, right, they're more likely to understand what their tolerance level and all that. So that, right. that's one of the biggest misconceptions they wanted to do away with. 
I think so. And and uh, Latrice Thomas, whom I, I interviewed outside of Tampa, she was the one who said, we don't smoke to get blazing high. I've got things to do. I'm a mother. I'm a business person. You know, she was very adamant that particularly as we've we've come to understand cannabis as a substance that has both a, a recreational purpose and a medical purpose or a wellness purpose, I think we started to understand that there are circumstances in which, okay, well, a small amount of that may actually be contributing to me genuinely feeling better in a situation or handling a situation better. And they were all quite adamant. Yeah, this is, you know, you you can't really or shouldn't really get extremely impaired around a child for a number of reasons. It's not a thing that, you know, a child doesn't necessarily want to see a parent who is acting in a way that's very much out of keeping with the way that they normally uh, act. But there's, you know, obviously there's also the, the practical considerations of being present in the moment and being able to parent in a safe way. And so all the women that I spoke with were, you know, they're definitely advocates of microdosing. So taking just enough cannabis to either feel effect or even not, right? Sometimes people will take below a threshold dose just because they feel it gives them something that they don't quite feel that makes them a little bit a little bit easier to get along with and a little bit easier to relate to for their kids. You know, the other part of it is, is that you know a lot of them get get a lot of backlash, so they're very selective of who they tell. Oh, I do right. smoke marijuana because you know a lot of people right away are quick to say, "Hey, you're a bad parent." That's something that I think everybody that I, I spoke to for this article mentioned that in passing. Latrice Thomas down in Florida said, well, you know, she said, I'm not just a mother who uses cannabis. I'm a black mother who uses cannabis. So I have to be very careful about who I tell. But Danielle Simon Brand, who uh, is a, a white reporter who I interviewed, she's out in, in the Pacific Northwest. She was also saying, well, this is, you know, I do have to be careful because people are judgmental, even in legal states, right? You know, there's this classic interpretation whereby this thing was illegal for a long time. And a lot of people figure, well, that meant it must be bad. And now that it's legal, people continue to believe that it's bad. And that's not necessarily coming from a place of science, but, you know, it's, I'm really interested in getting voices out to just talk about the fact that people are having these experiences and that kind of flies in the face of the assumption that, that this is a net negative. Obviously, anytime you're, you know, you're combining something that has, you know, the ability to impair a person with parenting, you have to be careful. But there are so many circumstances in which people are happy to consume a small amount of alcohol around their children. And the argument that every woman that I spoke to said, in many cases, I am actually in much more better control of my ability to consume cannabis than I am to consume alcohol. So I'm I'm much happier consuming that with my children around because I know that I'm going to be in more control. And I mean, we're even speaking here of the difference between a microdose of cannabis and a single glass of wine, which really doesn't, you know, it doesn't impair yeah. most people very, very highly. So, you know, I, I think it's just that we're at the beginning of a new way of understanding cannabis and cannabis effects. And it's going to take us quite a while to hear about the different ways that people use cannabis and the different types of cannabis that they use and in what circumstances and so forth. Jesse Staniforth, contributor to the BBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.